Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. This week, the Wine and Chisme podcast is presented by 808 Beats Wine. 808 Beats was inspired by a tremendous passion for wine and a love for an area of music known as freestyle. I love freestyle music. Freestyle is known globally as the old school music genre, which represents the days when every song on the radio felt as though it was written especially for you. They carefully created a fantastic tasting California wine that is bold, fruit forward, and smooth, just like the freestyle era. 808 Beats Wine. Taste the base. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanez. This week, my guest is Vikram Rocky Candola. Rocky is the owner-operator of Hair Made in India, born in New York but raised in Mississippi. To say he has experienced trauma in his life would be an understatement. He virtually lived alone in India at the age of 11, was sent to a teen boot camp where he was mentally, mentally and physically abused, and went to prison, all by the age of 19. As a warning, some of the subject matter may be triggering, but they are extremely important to, to discuss. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the cheese man. So what do you prefer to be called? Rocky? Or Everybody calls me Rocky. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just want to make sure. I would hate to like say that. I figured since that's what you told like since that's what you had. But, I mean, Vikram is your birth certificate name. <laughs> exactly, exactly. People, like, when they hear about it, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to call you Vikram. I love that name. And they still end up calling me Rocky anyway. So I'm just like, all right, <laughs> Rocky works. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to have you on. I've read kind of what your story is, but I'm sure there's a lot of gaps in there. And obviously, you're the first person with this type of background on the podcast. So that excites me as well, because really the whole point is to have a lot of different stories from across the BIPOC community. So where are you, were you born in the States or where are you a first gen um, immigrant? What is your situation? <laughs> I was born in this, I was born in New York in the Bronx actually. My parents were, you know, migrated here uh, like maybe five years before I was born actually in 1980. Where did they migrate from? India. Okay, I mean, I figured, but again, you can never make assumptions. <laughs> you can never make assumptions, but you need to ask and everything. So before we get into all of the chisme, and I don't know, do you know what chisme means? No, I don't. I, so I, been, I was pronouncing it wrong, though, for sure. <laughs> what were you saying? I was like, chism, chisme, chisme. <laughs> well, I'm okay. I'm going to teach you a new Spanish word today then. Chisme means gossip in Spanish. Got right? it. Okay. okay. So obviously the wine and chisme, we drink wine and gossip, but in this gossip can be in any way. Right. In our particular instance, it's not going out and talking smack about other people. It's you get to spill your own cheese on yourself on your own terms. That's what right. we mean by that. Love so it. but I've had a couple some people ask me like what cheese means. And it's actually very close in the Philippines, like in Tagalog, they um, say cheese They just add an S to the end. So they know they understand what I'm saying. Before we get to that, I always get to we always start with the wine. We bookend with the wine. So, do you know the type of music called freestyle? Yeah. And I'm not talking rap. I'm talking like, no, I'm not talking freestyle <laughs> rap. Because as soon as I said that, I said, you're like, hmm. No, it's like Stevie B, Expose. This is like very 80s, early 90s type of music. 
And okay. so there is this um, vintner called 808, this winemaker called, they're um, 808 Beats is the, is the wine. Nice. And it says it was inspired by passion for wine and a love for air and music known as freestyle, which I am a freestyle fan. Okay. Absolutely love it. You're going to have to look up um, like little Susie. You're going to have to look up. I'm going to give you like a list of okay. places I'll to check look it out. up. <laughs> so I've been waiting to try this wine, but I have not tried it because there's been, it's a California red wine and they're, they didn't have ex- exact tasting notes, but this is what it says. 808 Beats Wine was inspired by tremendous passion for wine and a love for an era of music known as freestyle. Freestyle is known globally as the old school music genre, which represents the days when every song on the radio felt as though it was written especially for you. We carefully created a fantastic tasting California wine that is bold, fruit forward, and smooth, just like the freestyle era. So I'm happy with that. So I'm going to take, are you drinking with me today? I wanted to so bad, but I, I drove here and I'm at the office and I was like, I don't know if it'd be the best combination for me to get a bottle of wine right now. So like, <laughs> well, I'm, let me I'm tell you. Tonight in spirit. So. Okay. Well, yeah. Tonight in spirit. Think of me when you have your wine. Dude, this is really good. I'm 808 Beats. I'm gonna have 808 Beats wine. This is actually really good. Um, let, me t- let me take another drink. Let me just make sure. <laughs> <Go> it's- <laughs> No, dude, this is really, really good. Awesome. This is, I like it. It is smooth. Um, okay, so anybody who's going to, if you, I'm going to send you the picture. You'll have to get 808 Beats wine. It's really good. And it's from a um, Mexican-American winemaker as well. Nice. So I'm very, uh, I really want to make sure that we're supporting our black and brown businesses. Super duper important to me. Definitely. But let's get, let's get into it. Let's just jump right in. You are the owner and founder of Hair Made in India, but before you got to that point, there is a lot of story. You had a pretty intense and traumatic childhood. Like you said, you grew up in New York, but tell me about what that childhood was and how that led you to be in these like boot camps. Yeah, definitely. So, um, as you said, I, I was born in New York and I only lived there for like a couple of years as, as a kid. My father uh, kind of quickly moved us uh, down south to Mississippi when he was following his career path. Um, and that was kind of a big change because we had a lot of family in New York, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of Indian community. Uh, you know, my mother's parents and, and were there and they kind of kept the traditions and everything going on. Uh, moving to Mississippi, we had no Indian families around, no Indian groups or meetings or churches or anything like that at all. So it was kind of like, you know, we we're thrown in this tiny town of Pascagoula, Mississippi with 25,000 people or so in it uh, into a totally different culture and lifestyle. And as kids, you know, we were fine. We don't, we don't, we don't care about too much of the culture. And we don't care who's, whoever's around us. We're going to learn from them and be with them, be happy with it. Um, and that's what we started doing. You know, I would always be wanting to go out and about play tennis, play sports in the front yard and play hide and go seek on the weekends with the neighbors and stuff like that. And my parents being, you know, Indian and traditional back then, especially, they're like, no, like we want you at home studying all day, reading books, reading the encyclopedia. My father was very, very education oriented and he wanted us to have that. And that's, we started butting heads, you know, like I was a very outspoken, um, not quiet kid and um, a little bit tough to deal with sometimes. And that wasn't like the ideal Indian, you know, child for a, a parent that they wanted. So started me getting sent to India actually at 11 years old. Uh, my father sent me there to live alone for about six months or seven months. Wait, or so. wait, to live alone? Well, I had a family living near near there, like in the same flat as me that was supposed to be taking care of me. But they were like 25 and had just had a kid of their own and didn't really know what to do. Like, so like, you know, I love them. They're amazing. But they did, you know, it was a long time ago and they were young as well. And my dad kind of just tossed me on their shoulders. They were family. And, so was um, it because you weren't doing the things that your parents wanted you to do in Mississippi? Exactly. So he told me back then that was for a cultural experience. Uh, but later on in life, I found out that he was just kind of couldn't handle me right then too much at that point. And they wanted me to like, you know, go live somewhere where I'd understand who I was. And I was Indian and I wasn't supposed to be running around and playing games and stuff like that. But wouldn't that do the opposite? Because exactly. I mean, you're 11, you're in a place where you've never lived. You don't, did you speak the language or did your parents speak to the language to you that you were at least able to communicate? 
a little bit, a little bit, and I knew a little bit as well, not as much as I know now. Um, but back then, you know, the, the area I was in in Chandigarh, I didn't know, I knew like rudimentary, like Hindi and Punjabi, and that was enough. Um, and in the schools I was in, they were teaching English and stuff like that as well there. So it was, I was able to communicate very nicely, like, you know, and, and the, the kids I was in school with, they all spoke English as well. Um, some didn't, like the, the people I was staying with, they had a servant um, named Ram Chander. And me and him became best friends. Um, he didn't speak English, but I got to practice with him. And I would, I would actually sneak him out of the house because they wouldn't let him leave. And they're very strict on him in my tennis bag. So I'd put him in my tennis bag, put him in my wait, backpack. Wait, wait, <laughs> Okay, I know that people are probably doing a double take like I'm doing. Wait, what do you mean you snuck him in your backpack? I had like a big tennis bag, right? With like they had enough room for three rackets for shoes, like a really big tennis bag. Oh, uh, because I played tennis a lot. And I sneak him inside of it. Like I, he was like half my size and I was a big 12 year old and he would fit in there and I would just walk out of the house like that. Cause they wouldn't let him go anywhere. They wouldn't like give him like food, like meat. Like they wouldn't give him chicken. They wouldn't give him food and stuff like that. And so like I would sneak him out and we'd go to the market as little kids and we just buy like a kilogram of chicken. So he was home. a child as well. I think he was, I feel like he was younger than me, maybe a couple years younger than me even. And he, he was, was the servant. Yes. Is that like, normal in India? very very common very common and like his family like lived right behind the big house in an alleyway like in like a tent basically and i think his mother would come like cook and clean sometimes also he was like the main servant at the house though that would have to do all the small things um he might have been older than me i don't i really don't remember because he was like definitely like a mature smart little kid like very smart like i was i used to hate like the way they kind of treated him but it was like very normal Indian parents are very like they'll slap you in your face and they slap me a little bit and they would definitely like slap him and I was like always feeling bad and I was like like bro like we don't get to eat much and I don't like the food they cook so once a week you know when the chicken comes into the market which they bring new chicken to the market once a week we would go get it and then bring it back to the kitchen in the middle of the night for like an hour and cook it in a big pot in the middle of the night and then go back to my room and just eat the whole thing and like had we had like a lot of adventures like that oh my god that is crazy i've never heard an experience like that that's why i think it's so important to have these stories right because we need to learn about all of these different things so how long did the first of all did they ever find out that you were sneaking it and you guys were sneaking out i think they had their suspicions and and he would like i got him in a lot of trouble because you know like he wasn't supposed to do any of that and if i wasn't there he wouldn't so they probably knew a little bit you know and they knew that we were close so they had they had their own suspicions and things like that as well so how long were you in India? It must have been six or seven months. You know, I went there for a whole semester to a school. I actually would, would like hop on a bus and not train and end up on the other side of the country and everybody would be worried about me, but I'd be going for a tennis tournament or to travel and like going to the, to the beach and stuff like that. So was, you just found all of this out on your own at 11 years old. You're just like, all right, let me just figure this all out. I just ask around a little bit and, you know, follow some older kids sometimes and then just kind of go. <laughs> wow. That, like, seriously, my mind is blown right now. That's so crazy. That's, like, 11 is so young. So that's just, like, you have, you grew up very quickly then. Because to be able to handle all of that at 11 years old, that is a lot. So what happens once you get back to the States, once you get home? So when I get back to the States, like, I was I was actually transferred to a different school. Um, when I went to that school for a while, you know, I had my dad started teaching me to drive at a young age. And I kind of got in the habit of sneaking his car out and, you know, putting it in neutral and pushing it down the driveway uh, around, you know, 12 years oldish, 12, 13, maybe. And um, just go for joy rides. I'll go to like Taco Bell and go to the, the yacht club and go sit there and eat it and just pick up my friends and different things. Well, eventually I got pulled over one day and the next day I was supposed to be going to tennis camp. And instead I was headed to a boot camp, one of the craziest places in the world, basically like a living hell on earth. Wait, um, so you went from, I just need, I want to make sure I'm hearing this right. So your parents at 11 send you to India. So you're there for six, seven months. You come back home at 12 years old. Your parents and your dad had taught you how to drive. You snuck out. You got caught with the car one time. I actually, I got caught one time. Yes. You got caught one time. That's what I mean. You got caught one time. And then the next day you're off to a boot camp. Boot camp in Rosarito, Baja California, Mexico whoa yeah 
And that was like one of the craziest places I've been. It's, it's called the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. And uh, Paris Hilton actually shed a lot of light on those schools recently in her documentary, This Is Me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you get there. So this one, this one, usually you get kidnapped, basically, which you get your arms and feet cuffed and you get escorted by two big guys to the facility. Uh, but this one my mom brought me to. Yeah, so we flew into San Diego and then we drove down to Rosarito and I was like, oh, I'm getting sent somewhere else. I've been sent to India, like whatever, some other school. And, you know, they, they school, these, these are for-profit businesses. They market it like really kind of manipulative to the parents. And they were telling me, oh, you're going to be in the pool. You're going to be in the beach. You're going to be riding jet skis. You know, none of that is true. Like you get there and like after the intake with your mom is there for a second, you walk past the door, a double door. And when you get past that door, everything changes, like the lighting, the atmosphere, the mood, the smell, your clothes are ripped off, your hair is shaved, you start getting yelled at and screamed at and being told to do things and your shoes get taken away and you sleep on the ground for like 10 nights on a little small mat. And they wake you up, you know, in the middle of the night to count, to do a head count and put you outside in the rain. Only if it's raining, they put you outside so you can count in the rain and you come inside and not allowed to shower, you have to dry off and just, you know, go to sleep and wake up and start like a day that is like very, very regimented, you know, hour by hour. You wake up, you have like barely three minutes to like, they just say, shit, shower, shave, like, and you have three to four minutes, that's it. Um, you know, and it's very, very dirty facilities, you know, that, that we kind of keep cleaning and it's tough. Those places like, um, you know, eventually I wound myself up in prison, prison much later in life. And I, I always make the comparison that like, prison and compared to these places as a kid was a laugh, you know, it was a joke. It was nothing because um, the physical, the sexual, the mental, the, the torture and abuse that you go through there is just, especially at a young age. I um, mean, you know, I still have nightmares and flashbacks, you know, to those times to this day, you know, to this like yesterday, literally. I mean, it um, sounds like it was created to break you. Basically. What did you, how long were you there? So the pattern of my life was always like six to seven months at a boot camp or facility, then six to seven months back home and back and forth until from 11 to 17, 18. Now, when you were there and you were talking about all of these these types of abuse, what is, like, are you able to have communication with your parents during this time? So are you able to to talk to anybody when this is happening? Nope, you're not allowed to talk to anybody even next to you, any of your peers even. You're not allowed to talk without permission or look at a line without permission or sit up or stand up without permission you're allowed to write one letter home a week um which if you say anything you know that looks they call it manipulation but if you say anything like negative about the place they'll make you edit it and do it again so you don't get to send that letter out um you know there there was no communication we weren't even allowed to know all of us has found each other on facebook now and we call each other like survivors but we weren't allowed to know each other's names last names addresses phone numbers anything while we were there because they didn't want, you know, the kids, you know, like what happened now, like everyone's like together and, you know, protesting the schools and there's a big Facebook group. Yeah. They didn't want that to happen. So they were very, very strict on that. I mean, these places like I had like physical encounters where I was sick and in a, a punishment room where I had to sit on the edge of a chair and write notes from one end of the page to the other for four to eight hours. And I was sick there and I was crying. I got picked up from my shoulder and thrown into the wall behind me and kicked down a hallway to the next punishment room, which is restrained restriction, where they throw you on your stomach, they put your chin on the ground, a guy sits on top of you and they tie your hands and feet together behind your back. And they let one hand out like twice a day so you can eat orange juice or eat rice and drink orange juice. Um, and I spent, I don't even know how long I was in that room. It felt like weeks, but you know, it was only probably a couple of days. Um, but you know, after that happened to me there, you know, I got in punishment a few more times, but I was kind of like, scared you know I was, I was a little kid and these are 300 pound grown men that you know could pick me up and toss me like like easily you know I mean yeah you were a little boy what, what was the age range of the kids that were there I mean obviously you may not know the details but I'm sure you can have like a general idea were they all around your age no I mean I was one of the youngest at this facility I was one of the youngest um but uh, at 18 no they don't have any uh, jurisdiction over anymore so at 18 they say you know you get fifty dollars and a bus pass. You get put on the border of Mexico and U.S. and just live your life because your parents aren't going to take you back home. That's what they would tell us. So for me, like, then there's no like completion date average. Like, it takes some people five years to graduate from the program. It takes some people three years after they tell you. So in my mind, I was like, wow, I'm going to be here until I'm 18, and then oh I'm going to get. Oh my gosh! Out. So what do they consider graduate? Like, I'm using air quotes, graduating, because that's just like my heart is breaking for you and anybody that's had, I haven't had a chance to watch the Paris Hilton 
on net the thing this is me on netflix but i i've heard of it and i've heard like some of the the clips from it how so oh my god i don't even know what to ask because i'm just like what in the world right like i've not ever experienced anything like this and my heart is breaking for you as i'm as i'm hearing this and anybody else who's had to go through that what is the average what they would consider the average time to graduate and how long did it take you to graduate so I, I was pulled out, you know, after six months, but I mean, I never made it to their next level. Like they have these levels you have to go through level one through five, where you do seminars and get points and this and that. And then eventually like you have a meeting with your parents and that's when you're getting close to being able to actually leave. It's a whole big, big regimented, you know, manipulation, brainwashing type of program. Um, but you're going to school and the way you go to school in there is you read a book or read a textbook and then take the test, then the chapter. And that's how you graduate through levels and as far as schooling goes there wasn't they, they were very vague about average they say you know the fastest ever someone has been out graduated is like 18 to 20 months um but then they say that almost nobody does that it takes closer to three years to properly you know graduate the program and people have various levels of you know staying in there it's just a i mean some of my brothers and sisters that are survivors their stories are even just and they're not really the most comfortable sharing them but they're just craziness, you know, how long they stayed and how much stuff they went through. I went to two different ones, you know, different uh, points in my life and they were horrible enough for me. Yeah. What, when you, when you were pulled out of there, whatever you want to share, whatever you feel comfortable sharing is fine. Whatever you don't, I'm totally fine with. When your parents pulled you out, what was your conversation with them when you got pulled out? And I would imagine you wouldn't even be the same kid. I mean, to go through what's again, not just sounds, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like torture going through that because no child deserves to, to go through those types of things. How did that change you when you came out? And what, what was the first thing you said to your parents when you came out? I was still like very young. So, you know, in the beginning, I was just really happy to be out of there. Um, I remember like the first night while my mom was stayed at a hotel near um, the, the place and I was just so I was just touching everything and like walking around like smelling the air like like someone a grown man just getting out of prison for after a long sentence you know like um, I remember when I finally got home I started talking to them about what happened to me I told them about like the guy Jason Finlinson like kicked me down the hallway and threw me in the room and put me in my stomach um, I told them about like like there's like a sexual thing that happened to me like where I was laying on my bed and like I woke up like with my shorts like kind of pulled down towards my knees and like I just smelled a very heavy breath of beer and I don't know I don't know if I blacked it out like what happened I don't remember I don't think that I was actually like raped I guess I don't know but I know it was very awkward and something happened to me like really weird sexually and I told them that and they didn't really believe me you know they were kind of like always manipulating because the schools tell the parents like you know your child's gonna manipulate you and lie to you so they don't have to come to these places you know don't believe them I remember like feeling not believed and I remember like immediately like, you know what, I'm never telling or never talking about it again. Um, you know, and I just kind of shoved it down. And that kind of started like a real rebellious nature and a real like upset nature within me. Um, because, you know, when I went to these schools before I did, I didn't really know about alcohol or smoking or girls and this and that. And the older kids all had been through all that. And they were kind of looking at me like, why are you even here? Like, you know, I was about I to say, it sounds like, and not to say that it's right, because it's not, it's not right regardless. But it's like, it. <laughs> A one joy ride. I mean, that just shows like how much some parents are just so strict and don't know what to do, right? Instead of reaching out within the community or seeing if there was anything, is it is it because your parents didn't know that if there was anything in the community for you, or is it just within the nature of you know the Indian community where if there is any sort of pushback, any sort of whatever, you send you get sent off. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily sent off because, like, first of all, like, Indian kids don't usually push back too much, you know, mm -hmm. and I was very, like, I was tough to deal with, you know, I wasn't just, like, an easy kid to deal I was very tough to deal with, like, right. I, talk back. I was very smart, I didn't, like, need to study usually, I would, and I would try to, like, teach my teachers, basically, in school, and, like, and if my mom or dad said something I didn't believe in or agree with, I would try to tell them, and, like, they didn't like that, so, yeah, I don't know, it's, like, I don't know any other Indian kids, too many that were sent off at all, period, but, um, there's very strict, like, you know, like if you act like this, you're going to get slapped and you're going to, you're going to learn from that. But I'm just not that type. You can't slap me or hurt me or punish me and have me like change myself. You know, like I, I can get scared a little bit, but it won't change anything in me. You know, right. I'm not that type of person. 
So you said you went to another school. What? So you came back, you tell your parents, and then they don't believe you. And you probably, I would imagine you would just shut down. Like I did. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of dove into like around that time, like you moved me to Alabama and, you know, enough to a private school where like I've, for the first time in my life properly dealt with like racism and, and craziness like that there as well, because Alabama was pretty bad back then. The school I went to was like a good old boy private system type of school. And I actually got kicked out of there because someone called me uh, an N word, sand N word. Like, and I told him, I like, hey, if you say it again, I'll kill you. I was like 12 or 13. Like, obviously I wasn't going to kill him, but like I was mad. I wanted to say it again type of thing. Um, so like from there I, I was, I went from that school to a bunch of small schools in between. I went to, um, military school uh in atlanta i went to a catholic boarding school um all these places like you know had their own like crazy times there and now eventually convinced my dad to send me to the next one which is like the easier school basically the military school is tougher than the boarding schools would be easier um and eventually i convinced him to you know bring me back to my public high school in mississippi where i was supposed to be in the first place where i had friends from that knew me like when i first started getting sent to mexico they didn't know what happened they were like oh we heard rocky got sent away we don't know where he's been so finally one day i came back and um we were driving back from spring break actually i think i was i must have been 16 or 17 maybe and we got pulled over with alcohol in the car um and the two people that were with me they just you know got like a ticket and whatever and went back home went back to school uh but for me that's when i got like the kidnap story i woke up with my ankles and my hands cuffed together already uh by two big guys remember they're so tall they had to turn off the fan in my room so their head wouldn't hit the fan. And um, they escorted me to the new facility uh, on the border of Canada and New York, where if I told you that guy, Jason Phillipson, that kicked me down the hallway where he was actually running that facility now on that border. So when I walked in that school, the first person I saw was him. And I was just like, I had never felt that much anger. Like I wanted to hurt him so bad. Um, but like, you know, at this age, I was older and I'd been through the program already. So I knew kind of how to walk, talk and act to get through it. Um, and it was the same program, you know, it's just as rough, just as horrible, just as violent, just as manipulative, just as brainwashing. Um, but it was just, you know, in on the border of Canada, New York, and I was older, you know, so I didn't, I didn't get as much, you know, violent stuff towards them. When they did do anything to me, they had to use two people to grab me instead of one person because at 17, I was big. Like, you know, you couldn't just, even a grown man couldn't just grab me by themselves. They'd have to have two people. And, you know, I spent a little bit of time in punishment there eventually uh, until, you know, I started getting close to 18 and finally my parents were like, but he's almost 18. He's not really doing anything here. I graduated high school while I was there with a fake diploma because that school was closed down and it showed to me they never had the credible uh, thing to give people diplomas even. Um, so I actually don't even have a high school diploma. With a college degree, I don't have a high school diploma. So it's like crazy. Um, Wait, you have yeah. a college degree and not, but not a high school diploma? That's all right. <laughs> I gave a diploma, but then the state of New York went back and said that, you know, this school wasn't credible and allowed to give out diplomas. So if you got one from them, like, you don't have one. But um, because you – did you go to um, college before that was mandated? Exactly. I went to college right after. I started college at 17 and um, just jumped right into college. And I think a couple of years later is when we found out it wasn't good. But, you know, by then I had already halfway through my college coursework and they didn't, they didn't bother me. So where did you end up going to college? The South, University of South Alabama, right next to my parents' hometown, at 17. And by then, I was totally, like, rebellious, and you can't tell me anything. I didn't respect authority or, or adults at all. I got dove deep into, like, selling, you know, drugs and doing drugs and partying and women and fraternity life and, you know, all So when you started selling, because I see you got convicted in Alabama, right, for selling for, you got convicted of distributing distribution of a controlled substance, which is dealing basically, um, because you have to have a certain amount or more for distribution. I know this from an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Otherwise, I would probably ask, like, what's the difference? I do know the difference. <laughs> um, so what, like, did you stick strictly within like weed? Was it other controlled controlled substances? Were you doing yeah, hard things? And it was during your college years that you were doing this? It was even before college, I started selling weed a little bit, you know, just because I realized that in Mississippi, I could buy it for less and sell it for higher in Alabama. Um, you know, after when I was out, like it was everything from pills to cocaine to 
to weed to even like perfumes and Jordans and hats and stuff, anything. I would just sell anything and everything to to make money and to, to do what I wanted to do and to go party. Like I didn't save any of it. I didn't put it together or anything. It just went away that weekend, basically. <laughs> so how, after you've been through these just ridiculous boot camps and you've been through private schools and military schools and it sounds like you spent more time away at these different things than you did at home how and then you end up getting convicted how did and I know you referenced earlier that like prison was almost like a joke compared to the other things that you had experienced but how did all of that affect your view of the ver- of the world when how long were you first of all in incarceration in prison and then how did that affect your view of the world when you finally got out? Yeah, um, I was, so it took a total of like almost seven years of my life between jail, rehab, house arrest, probation, and then ultimately prison. And you know, when I got out, I, I went back to the same things. I was just, I was sick of the world. I was like, this is unfair. You know, like I shouldn't have been doing this much time. I Everything that's happened, like it all led up to this. Like I was just kind of jaded and just kind of had no direction, didn't really care. And I was just back on the street again, you know, like, you know, started doing drugs again, started selling again here and there, you know, just, it was, it was kind of bad. Like, and then that was kind of like the first turning point in my life. Like, I think it was November 4th, I believe 2011, maybe 11 or 12. My dad came to me and was like, Hey, you know, you're out, you're done with everything. You know, you're not living at home. You're, you're not asking us for money really anymore. Like maybe you should, you know, get out of town. Maybe you should go somewhere. And like a higher power, literally energy came into me and it was like, Rocky, like, just go try it out. So I left behind, you know, all my friends, all the circles I was in dealing with and the girlfriends and everything, my identity that I I knew for myself and just went to India and started living a clean life. And that was kind of like the first turning point that I didn't even make on my own. Like, you know, it was kind of like energy outside of me just like said, Rocky, give this a shot, try it. And, you know, it's been a journey since then even. But I mean, that was the first step. So how was it going back to India? Because obviously, I'm sure it's a very, very different experience from when you're 11 versus when you're in your 20s. Um, What was that experience like going back to India and how long were you there? I stayed almost a year this time and um, ended up like, you know, getting uh, married and everything uh, during that time and starting the business. Um, But it was great. It was what I needed. You know, it was, um, I love India. I go back every year, twice a year now, not just for business to see family and friends also, but it was, that was, it was needed. I remember the first couple nights there, I called my dad like really drunk and I was just like, are you like, you sending me away again? Like, you know, like, what are you like, there's a one way ticket. Like, is that what this is? And he's like, no, 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 don't worry. Like, if you want to come back tomorrow, I'll book your ticket to come back tomorrow. I just thought it'd be good for you. And I was like, I don't know. I was like, okay, I guess I'm not being forced to. So let me stay. And I started like living, you know, nicely there and I enjoyed it. And it was, uh, it was life changing for me. It was like, you know, I had a lot of issues after that, you know, still bumpy road and stuff, but um, that was the beginning of, you know, starting to get me on the track that, that would ultimately lead to where I am now. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, not everything. You actually answered my question because I was going to ask, you know, oftentimes people who come out of incarceration, it's very difficult for them to find jobs. And they tend to go back to what they did before because they they feel like they have no other option. So I was going to ask if you had a plan for your life. You already answered that by, you're like, no, I just went back to the same thing. Like you just answered like what I was going to ask. But once you were in India and you started kind of on this different path that was completely different, you say you got married. What was your, did you figure, okay, now I have to have a plan. If I'm going to go back to the States, I need to have a plan to, to do that. Were you was were these things and you because you said you started your business while you were there, right? A hair business. What prompted you, first of all, to start that business? How did you figure like this is what I want to do, and how do I start, right? Because I think that's sometimes, especially when you go through so much, it's really hard sometimes to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, even if you're not at the end of the tunnel, just to see that there is it's not, you're not always in complete darkness. So what was it that started, the light started flickering for you that said, okay, you know what? There's an opportunity for me here that I can take advantage of. Exactly. So I actually came up with a business plan for hair made in India when I was in prison. And um, so I was like, 
we would, I was like brainstorming different things with my bunkmate and, you know, from everything from restaurants to clubs to, to trading and this and that and this and that. And the hair was one of them. And we used to use a cell phone that was snuck in to call out and like put down numbers about the market, about how much it costs, about what we should do. And when I was in India, I actually pulled that page out you know, from my journals. And I was like, oh, let me, let me try this. Cause I was looking to do something in India. I was like, I want to start a business here, or a restaurant here. And I was just, I kept getting like dead ends, you know, it was tough. And I was like, let me try this. So I started meeting like manufacturers and vendors and, and learning about the industry there. And then I made one Facebook post and I, all my homegirls from high school were like, literally like Rocky, like you got hair. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need extra hair. I got plenty, but yeah. So they started reaching out to you. What was the post you put? You were just like, Hey, I'm just going to start. Yeah. I was just like, Hey guys, like I got some raw Indian hair on deck. Like, you know, who wants some, like, you know, if I bring it back to the States, and they just went crazy. They're like, oh, hit us up, hit us up, hit us up. Like, come, come, come. And so I was like, I didn't look back from that point. Uh, I was like, my now ex-wife, like, you know, we started putting it together and putting the name together, putting uh, the sourcing together. And I actually, uh, before, like, if I rewind, I was assaulted before I went to prison and lost, like, half my jaw, my teeth and everything. And I was picked up and thrown into a concrete sidewalk. Oh, so no. Because like, you said half of it is, like, right, recon- completely reconstructed? Like, plates and wires all the way down from here to here all that is like mini implants. I had to take bone out of my head and put it in here um, to, in order to give my teeth back to me. So what happened that caused that? Um, I was with a ex-girlfriend uh, at the opera actually for a music class. And we went to a bar afterwards. And I think it was kind of like a jealousy thing. These guys all know me and know my name from around town. I was doing marketing and promotions like club promotions back then with like different people while I was selling and, you know, it was just, I don't remember too much of it. It was a good six months of my life. I don't remember because of all the surgeries and all the medications and all the hospitalizations. Um, but it was basically just jealous guys that I don't think they meant to hear me, hurt me as much as they did. They were just wanted to toss me on the ground type of thing. But the way they tossed me and the way I fell, they put me literally on the concrete sidewalk where my face just bit the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so then this was, was before you went to India, right? This is while you were still yeah, this was before prison. partying and dealing and everything. Exactly, exactly. I went to prison with half it done still, and I had to have emergency surgery from prison because, like, a piece of metal popped out where they put oh the bone in. I kept telling them, like, I need help. I need, I need medical attention. They wouldn't give it to me. So finally, like, I went to the, the CEO's office one day, and I was like, look, look at my face. Like, it's bleeding, and there's metal popping out. I need to get surgery. And they finally gave me surgery after that. Wow. So how long before you, you said you were in India for a year, so you came back with the plan because you've already started this, this business. When you came back, how was that? Like coming back, you're coming back as a, almost like a totally different person as the person that you left. Yeah. How did that feel? Did you come, where did you come back to, first of all? And then how did it feel? Like, did you kind of feel the urges of, of what you used to do coming back? Because sometimes when you come back, and especially if you come back to where you left oftentimes and that's like any of us right if we're in a situation that we wasn't the best and we come back and start hanging around the same people those things kind of start popping up again exactly so i i came back to new jersey and with my wife at the time and you know like i made a promise to her and to myself like whatever we do whatever i do i'm not going back into selling drugs and i've stuck with that since then i really made that shift in my mind like this is not i'm not doing this at all period that's not going to happen that's not how i'm going to be making my money that's not how i'm going to live my lifestyle um but, you know that being said i still like dibbled and dabbled a bit in like you know pills here and there you know the when i was back in new jersey a little bit of smoking weed um drinking and stuff like that um but i was also teaching tennis you know while i was building the business and i was there with her and my dad was helping out a little bit with the bills also because you know we were both new and um it was tough you know like I, whenever i'd go back down south i'd still hang out with those friends a little bit down there until eventually, you know, me and her moved away from New Jersey and came to California. And when she left, it was when I was like, you know what? I'm changing everything again. I'm going to quit eating meat. I'm going to quit listening to music. I'm going to quit watching TV. I'm going to start working out. I'm going to start yoga. I'm going to start meditation. And I'm going to take away everybody in my life that isn't serving me, that isn't positive around me. And I did. And that was huge. That was like the biggest shift I made. The second shift I made. And the one of the biggest ones as well. And that was, you know, just after she left, like we moved to California and we're living with her family and, you know, we still weren't making that much money in the business. I was still teaching on the side. I was still doing whatever, you know, small things on the side as far as teaching tennis that I could to make money. 
And when she left, I was basically homeless. Uh, I was living out of a minivan. And, you know, when she left the, in the beginning, I started drinking a lot again. And I would just like literally be like random club in Hollywood doing cocaine in the bathroom and like crying to some person in the bar about how my wife left me and staying on the side of the road in my, in my van. But during the days, during that time, I would be going to businesses and calling them and going to meet anybody that wanted to meet me directly wherever they were, just putting it in. And I was like, everyone's telling me, Rocky, come back home, come back home. Like she left you, you have like, what are you doing there? Like you're, you're gonna kill yourself, you're gonna hurt yourself. Like just come back home, you don't know anybody. And something in me told me like, if I go back home, I'll give up and I will never do anything ever good again. So stay here, stick it out, Rocky, see what happens, see if you can make it. And it was tough, man. It was a tough, no one would give me an apartment because of my background and no work history. Um, it was tough to even get a place. And I, when I finally did, um, that was the day, May Cinco de Mayo of 2000, I think, 15, maybe, 16, maybe, is when I quit meat, everything. There might have been 17 even, just three, four years ago. And um, I was like, drunk every day I was I finally got this place where like you know I walked in I laid down on the ground I was like oh my god I got a studio for three thousand dollars a month I have a studio <laughs> nothing in it but oh, at least I have a place yeah. well yeah. yeah you're in LA I mean I'm in San Diego but so, you know those still so you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I'm not gonna pay three thousand dollars for a studio where were you what if part of LA were you in downtown LA and they were oh. the only people that would not do a background check get, it was a beautiful like like luxury building and they would let me in only if I showed them a certain amount of dollars in my business bank account. So eventually like, I got saved up. I took a loan out for, I think, 10000 I had to pay back $15,000 on. That was like, a crazy, like a horrible loan. But I needed, I wanted to get a place. And I thought that my wife would come back if I got a place for us to do. Um, you know, she eventually did come back. You know, she saw that I was stable. I had a house there. I stayed there. I was working. And, um, you know, we just weren't meant to be. She's a great person. We're still friends. We just, we tried it again after that and just it didn't work out. You know, we, right. We just uh, we argued a lot and different things like that. But, you know, now we're, we're friendly and we're okay. She's actually in India traveling right now as well and, and, you know, doing good in life. And we chat here and every once in a while. But um, she, I was very grateful for her. Like, whether it's like the person had the intention to or not, we learn from the experiences and what we go through and the things are around us. And absolutely having a wife and having that responsibility for the first time in my life and really being dedicated to that. And, and I loved her to death, you know, like I still have a place in my heart for her. Um, I was all about her and um, having to level up and be better in that sense. Like it really, 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 really brought me to a place of, of, you know, real integrity and, and, you know, real business integrity as well. And um, yeah, that day, May 5th, when I quit everything, um, you know, my life has been so different. So, so much better since then, because I've kept those things going. I told you I stopped listening to music and watching TV shows. I started feeding my brain with podcasts and YouTubers like, uh, Robin Sharma, Ralph Smart, Wayne Dyer, Joe Dispenza, Tim Ferriss, all these guys, like, they were positive, you know, um, and those are my mentors, those are the, my friends, you know, I, I didn't have any friends in LA, that's who I would look up to and listen to on a daily basis, you know, that with yoga and meditation, and I slowly started to heal until, you know, she left again, and I kind of went through the process again, you know, where after COVID, when she was gone, I was alone, I was pulling my hair, I was scared, I was like, going crazy i was like I don't did she leave like, prior, just prior to COVID or right after she left a year before COVID. a year and before I had another relationship actually after her a girlfriend and we had broken up right before COVID. so like i was like in a really really low place i was like i was confused about like do i love both these girls and want both of them back now like i don't know what's going on why did i hop into a relationship so fast after that um and it took a lot of soul searching to finally realize like yeah rocky like you did love both of them and yeah they are both great people and everything happens and people come in your life for reasons. And I learned amazing things from both of those women. And, you know, they're both doing well and, and great people still. It just wasn't meant to be. And I don't think I was ready to actually, you know, be in a relationship properly because I had so much stuff that I've been dealing with from my past that I'd pushed away that I was almost looking for like a counselor instead of like a relationship. And it doesn't work. I feel like in a good relationship, both people are kind of like bringing happiness and love to the table and then sharing it together, you know, versus... yeah to get that out of somebody else and i think i was more of the one looking like for like love like and i wanted like real love from somebody i needed it from someone besides myself and um you know going through both the breakups and then going into COVID alone like that really brought that to me and it was scary like i was having dreams i was having like hallucinations almost i was like waking up every morning like crying like you know it was, it was tough but um 
I was living in the same place that I got my ex-wife, like moved from the studio to a loft downstairs. We had our business in the front and our things in the back and, and the loft was just full of like material things and clothes and X and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And so finally, like, you know, during COVID, I was like, and the riots happened and I was like, you know what? It's time for me to let go of this place and let go of all this stuff. And then I'm creating a new identity for myself. People are thinking I'm successful because I have a loft downtown in front of Staples Center. And that's not how I want you know, my identity to be created and go. I want to be free. And I want to, you know, get away from this house that I'm scared to come home to every day that, that I don't want to come home to sober because, like, I'm sad when I get there. I miss, you know, both relationships I had there and the friends that I brought there. And, you know, I started talking about it. My parents and my friends, like, are you crazy? Like, don't do that. Like, you're a felon. Like, you don't even get another place. Like, and then it's COVID. Like, what are you going to do? Don't do it. So I had to, like, block out everybody again and stop listening to everybody, stop all distractions, and finally make the decision. Like, okay, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave this place. And I'm going to give away all my things to the people around me. So I gave, I mean, like, suits, shoes, jackets, clothes, dish items, food items, bed items, living room furniture, bedroom furniture, electronics. You literally just wanted a clean slate. And I gave it all away to the homeless people, to people, homeless people right down the street, to to neighbors. I just gave it all away. And now I have one backpack, one suitcase, one small duffel bag suitcase, and my tennis bag. And that's it. And I've never been happier. I don't even have a a, a lease, like a long-term lease right now. When I first got out of there, I went to a hostel again um, where I met my now girlfriend. And I met, like, it's crazy how you give everything away. And so much comes back in your life because in that in the last four months, like the friends I've made, the, the the love that's came to my life, the businesses came to me, even for my team that like that has been put together like in this amount of time and gotten stronger and closer, working together towards the same goals. Like that was a blessing, man. And it came literally right after I just gave everything away. I was like, you know what? I don't want any of this. It's all. Right. T- so wow. that was like a shift for me. Like that was the most recent powerful shift I made, and uh, that's you know helped me. And how has your, like, that's a lot to deal with personally. How were you able to continue to push things on, on the professional side? I would just cry through it, man. Like, I would, like, just work in the front, like, see my clients, answer the phone, and then go to the bathroom and just, like, literally, like, ball up and just, like, scream and cry, like, every single day. So Until- you have, like, a physical location, a physical store in downtown. Oh. So I did have that. That's when I left, but now I'm in Beverly Hills. So I upgraded that that place to the Beverly Hills place. So I got a physical location, full long-term lease on this place. But for my living situation, that was a live-work, mixed-use place. Um, so I was living behind it. And now I just have my office here. Now I just, and now I'm doing it. Right now I'm doing the Airbnb month-to-month thing. Because I'm not really sure where I want to live in LA or if I want to get a long-term lease or, you know, I'm not really picky or demanding or need certain things when it comes to living. And I'm very, I go with the flow and adaptable. So the Airbnbs are kind of, they're, they're working out nicely. I'm getting to explore different parts of LA and then I come to the office, you know, we have a girl working for me here. Uh, is a good friend of mine also. So she takes hours and I'm not here and I come in and we just, it kind of works really nicely. So what are, what is people's normal reaction when they first hear your story? Because this, that's a lot to take in, right? You meet, like, I'm sure because normal, naturally, we want to get to know people that we meet. So tell me about you. Tell me about this. And if you're like, tell me about you. And you, and you say, well, and you just, that's all, that could be a lot to take in for some people, right? No, I mean, it's just, it's not a, a dig. It's just the truth. Some people I'm sure cannot handle that. How do you approach people or how, what, even on a business side, right? How do you approach businesses? Do they want to know what your history is? Do they care? And then just on a personal, like making friendships and having relationships, like how do you, how do you navigate that? So on a personal side, I am direct. Like uh, I have to tell everybody everything about me immediately and then they have to be okay with me before we can like get closer to a friendship or relationship, you know, like, and like even my ex-wife, like that, And then the first day or two, you know, she knew like everything. The first time I met her parents, I talked about, you know, how I was been in prison and had a crazy background. Um, So personal relationships, I need people to know like, hey, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I've been through. You know, I might not be doing the same things anymore, but this was part of my past. You know, and you might see it pop up like, you know, but I get triggered, you know, sometimes by small things. And I've never been like an angry type of person, but I've definitely had things happen, you know, like to where, I'll have a smell or something like that and just kind of shut down all of a sudden again, like just smell something randomly or see something randomly. Um, on a business note, 
I was actually very scared to talk about it. I didn't want to ruin my business. My parents were like, don't talk about it. So in the beginning, I would actually lie. I would actually say, you know, the whole business idea started from, you know, uh, thinking about things while I was traveling in India and that's where it started. And eventually I got to a point where I was like, you know what? This is what, like maybe four years ago, I was like, if I can't, five years ago, maybe, if I can't do this business and be real with who I am and have people accept that, then I don't think I'm doing the right thing. I started telling people, like, hey, this is what it is. And and my clients were so inspired and motivated by it. And they reached out to me and tell me that I was like, you know what? I'm going to start sharing this. And that's why I started doing the podcast. So I was like, I'm going to start sharing this with everybody. Maybe everybody can get some uh, some help from it. And for me, it's incredibly healing and it's incredibly helpful because it's so normalized in my brain. And my brain is so like, you ask me, like, how do people deal with it? For me, it's like, it's just life. Like, that's, that happens to everybody, doesn't it? You know, like, yeah. we all go through these things. And a lot of people look at me like, <laughs> and I'm like, really? Like, you never heard about this stuff before? Like, and that's making me understand, like, you know, like a lot of what I went through, like, it needs to be talked about. It needs to get out there. I need to heal Absolutely. from it. I need to get out of me as well. And when I do that, other people can get experience and, and motivation and inspiration from it as well. So it's like so a win. Speaking of, have you been able to take any any action or to speak up about like outside of podcasts or do anything in regards to the, these boot camps to help future um, potential victims? I mean, that's the only way I could describe these, you know, what is happening. You're being victimized. Is there yeah. anything or have you been able to take part in anything to help try and shut these types of things down? So there's schools, there's like Facebook groups now. We like, we, we post on there. We talk about it on there. I'm open to receiving calls from parents or, or kids. Um, there was recently a protest, the Provo Canyon School in Utah, which I really wanted to make it to. Um, it just, it didn't work out good. I found out about it late and I just couldn't get there. It was like a flight, then a bus, then a, a renting a car type of thing. Um, but I was definitely there in spirit, definitely posted, we shared everything. And I mean, it's slowly getting more light brought up on it. And that's kind of what needs to be done. You have to fight these things properly you know we can't just go give them back the same vibe because i wanted to always like in the past just go down there take like a molotov cocktail throw it into the the door and just like you guys are free like get out get out like you know like but that's not the right way to do it that just will cause more problems you know so we're all kind of fighting this now and like a lot of the kids that are doing like we're they've been hurt you know like these these adults now like we have issues like people major ptsd i would imagine major majorly and like it's tough you know so we're putting a group of people together like trying to talk about this stuff you know it's we fight within the group a lot you know because like there's different a lot of different personalities and so many different emotions and, and feelings and triggers but i think steps are being made in the right direction and you know if i ever get more of a platform to be able to share this like i will 100 percent without a doubt without um shedding or without you know holding anything back share all of my heart and soul and memories and stories and journals you know to the world and you know and hopefully we can start to slowly stop this because the worst part about it is these schools under different names and different ownership are still active and still running like as we speak right now. So what would you say to young people that are, are going through a hard time? Maybe they've come out of one of these programs. Maybe they have had, you know, maybe it's juvenile hall. Maybe it's not a boot camp. Maybe it's juvenile hall. I think there's a lot of stuff that happens within, within that system as well. If you, if you had a kid in front of you or you had multiple kids in front of you that went through something very similar, what would you want them to know? What would you say to them? I would say what you've been through isn't normal. It isn't your fault. And there's also no one to blame for it. Um, you need to start right now and reframe that in your mind and take everything you can that you learn from it and get it off your chest. Find a close friend, a person, a counselor, and call me, anybody, and let them listen to you. Because it, it don't do like I did for 20 years, hold it down, and, and all of a sudden as an adult, start thinking about it again, you know, after I went through all I went through. For me, it was important because I realized this stuff is still in me. If it doesn't come out, it's going to sit in me forever. Um, so talk about it as much as you can back then, um, face your fears. And then, um, it's really important for us to like, understand, like, no matter what we're doing in life, what we go through, whatever bad it is, we always can create and do more and whatever we want to do. And that starts with a couple of small things, which is like, you know, the people you put around you, the distractions you allow into your life and how much you feed your body, mind, body, and soul with good things. And, and that's something we can start doing any, at any age, at any gender, any race, you know, right now, right this second, especially 
we're so blessed to have the technology and the internet these days that we can find that positivity, you know, and then filter out the the noise basically. So, so I'll call if you want to call it that of everything else. And, um, facing those fears and take, taking that leap of faith. I think especially kids in, in these days, like they're hit with so much of the social media society, that the negative sides of it, that, you know, they, they might even be like not understanding or believing there's more out there in life. And you know, I'm like a, a walking example of one of those kids, like back in my day. And, um, and also a walking example of there is a lot more than we can do, you know, yeah. from everything, the, the hole I dug myself into at the very, very bottom where like I was happy there, you know, I was comfortable there. Um, to taking that that risk and be like, you know what, this is not me. It's not going to be me. Let me go find me, really. Um, you know, and, and that those kind of things come when you when you are able to get rid of distractions and people in your life that aren't necessary, and go to nature and go be with yourself and really get in tune with what's going on with you. Um, it's a journey. It's not. Uh, it's a healing process. It isn't like it isn't like a line, like a, a linear A to B point. It's a journey. It's a dance. Like you know, it, it comes with time. So. What would you tell parents that are considering sending their kids to something like this? I would say talk to them, you know, don't, don't just send them away, uh, communicate with them, um, do your research. And there might be some good programs and schools out there. They're, they're meant to help. Um, but a vast majority of them are very manipulative and they're for profit businesses. Look at them like that. Think about it before you make decisions, really try to connect with your children, uh, you know, versus anything else. Uh, many times communicating and, and being patient and having faith um, can change someone's life way faster than anything you can do to hurt them, punish them, or hit them. How has this whole experience affected your relationship with your parents? I used to hate them. We used to butt heads horribly bad, fights and everything. Um, and now, you know, we have a good relationship, finally, after 30 years, I guess, like, <laughs> Do they, have you discussed this with them? Like, how do they feel about all of these things now? Like now that you're older, you've told them when you were 11, 12 years old or 12 years old, you told them what was happening. And, you know, still 20 plus years later, you're still like, this is what happened to me. Has their view changed? Do they believe what happened to you now? Well, they hear some of my podcasts also, and um, they don't really talk about the details. I don't think they want to they never wanted me to talk about this stuff publicly ever. They were kind of like, just leave it, stop, like sh- be quiet. It's in the past, let it go. Um, but I don't know. My mom told me one thing and they both said this, like when I came home a couple of weeks ago or a month ago or so that we heard your story, your podcast, like Rocky, you know, like we love you. We were only saying there to help you. And if you didn't send you there, you would have been dead or had all your bones in your body broken. It's like, and they were in their mind, like they did the best they could do. And in, I, in my heart now, I know like they obviously wanted to help me. Mm-hmm. They just didn't know what these schools were. Um, I don't think it's even a factor whether or not they believe me anymore. I, I know that they do believe that like, I wouldn't make things up that happened to me there, right. um, especially for 20 years. And now there's a lot of kids talking about it too. So, you know, they're, they're getting in. Like, I mean, like I said, like, I don't think, I think they have actually, like, you know, we're sorry for sending you away. But at the same time, like, even I know now, like, they really truly believed that if they didn't, that I would wind up dead and wind up with all my bones and my body broken. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, if you really believe that, you know, you do what you can right and, yeah. and what they could do with two other my brother and sister with two siblings they're like you know what let's get him help let's send him to whatever place and these places aren't cheap they're very expensive let's send him to the best you know place we can send him the most strict facility that will take care of him type of thing and that's what they did so you said two things that i want to kind of just go over one you said that your parents didn't want you to talk about this and i think that's so familiar to anybody that comes from a community of color right we our parents things happen to us we say it and then they like for example me I was sexually assaulted and the song that I absolutely loved and now that comes on that came, that was playing during that was Hotel California which I absolutely hate now by the Eagles I like that is that triggers me I need to leave I need to get out of there I need to like change the radio station And even to this day, even though I've told my parents (laughs) and they know I've gone through this, it comes on and I'm like, you need to change the song. You need to change the song because it's very triggering for me. And my mom be like, hi, what are you talking about? And I'm like, change the fucking song, you know, and they'll change it. But I'm like, do you not remember? It's like, duh, like this is one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And it's like they 
sometimes it's like com- they're completely oblivious and they want, like, brush under the rug kind of thing yeah right? like oh you know it happened it was you know for me it was over 20 over 20 years ago right again but i'm still affected by it like i still am triggered by it i'm still like you know and that is one just one thing that happened so how did this and then the other thing is you know you have siblings how did this all of this affect your relationship with your siblings well i mean i didn't really get to spend much time with them you know um by the time i got back and i was um a little bit older you know i didn't want my brother or sister to be around the groups i was around so instead of you know being sent away i would just kind of keep them away from me also so we have a good relationship now you know we talk quite regularly and we love each other my brother and sister are the best they're amazing they're really really good kids man really good kids are both doing really well in life too um but you know we just weren't we didn't get to hang out that much as, as at a younger age my parents didn't want me around them either because they didn't want them to get influenced by me i guess so that was kind of sad and I know now that we're all older, I'm, I really like, especially now that we're all stable and my business is stable now, I would like to make more efforts to go to see them and, and spend time with them. Is all your family still in Mississippi? No, we're all over the place. My sister's in India. Uh, my parents are in Mississippi. My brother's in New York. Wow. So when I asked you to describe your life in one word, you said diverse. Tell me why you chose that word. I guess I could say chameleon or if I or adaptable, same diverse. I mean, because I mean, I'm the type like you can put me in a situation in any country and I'll adapt. I'll, I'll love it. I'll love that adaption. Um, you know, prisons, boot camp, schools, like it sounds crazy to say, but looking back now, I can see that some part of me was like, ooh, this is new. Like, let me figure out how this culture, system, people's area works. Um, you know, and like, and that's what I love now. It's a lot. I love to travel. And you literally can take me any country in the world. And I have my phone. I will be able to communicate with between Google Translate and learning small words here and there. I will be able to communicate within two days in that country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm a philosophy graduate, convicted felon, hair vendor. But you also have some IMDb credits. I looked you up. Don't <laughs> like... Come on, you know, I do, I do, I do my thing. Yeah, like how did that happen too on top of all that? I, I So I just randomly went to this theater one day for audition and they gave me a, a part of a vampire to play on stage on in, uh, in Hollywood for like two months, every Friday for like two months. And I started doing that and that kind of sparked it from there. And I don't know, I used to get lucky. People would just call me, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that movie, that, this movie, that thing? And I say yes to everything. And I just kept doing it and I met people. And now I still kind of get asked to every once in a while but i'm like very busy i don't really have as much time anymore so i kind of pick and choose like which project like something that looks really cool or something's for a friend if a friend calls me that i'm in the acting world and says hey we need a part we need some small thing i'm like yes tell me the time i'll make i'll make the time for it let's do it i'll do it 100 with you that's awesome have you started any or picked up or started any new hobby during this time of covid uh, yeah, man, I've, I've dove into e-commerce. I actually started doing the writing of the book and speaking on the podcast during COVID. I uh, redid my entire site for wholesale and drop shipping things I put in there. Uh, I picked up a new business uh, for property vacation rentals and I bought my first property. Um, also, you know, kind of relaunched my CBDT business. So, I mean, honestly, like, I hate that the world is hurting and everything that's happening, but I'm kind of grateful for the time that you know i've had and, and the those do not sound like hobbies that just sounds like you're just doing more work like i said a hobby and you're like oh yeah about property oh, that's the it's like the, gardening the, or reading uh, i'm reading more <laughs> I, i'm reading a little bit more but i love the, the like i read business books i love like the journey of business and like like the excitement of it. It's like, it's kind of like a hobby for me almost, you know, too. Like I'm not scared to like lose money in, in business. So I like kind of, I equate that to like spending money on a hobby, you know, like trying a business out kind of thing. Um, I mean, I like to push my friends' businesses and see what they can do and how I can help them. Mm-hmm. But for me, my biggest hobby is, is nature slash the beach, tennis and traveling. And, you know, traveling, I can't do as much as I want right now. I went to Cancun right. a month ago, which was fun, but like, not my exact like I love party destinations, but I should have went to Tulum while I was there and got some, you know. Uh, some I mean, that's the only place we're welcome right now. Anyways, I took a three week road trip up the coast from oh, wow. San Diego up to Portland to my to see my sister and I. So that wow. was like, when am I going to get to do that? Might as well take advantage of, of this time. Um, what is your website if people want to go and where can they find you if people are interested in your hair products, your hair, like your hair, basically the hair that you're selling. 
So, so two websites, basically my main website is my blog and it's just Rocky Candola.com. That's R O C K Y K A N D O L A.com. Uh, and I have like all my past podcast episodes on there as well as my hair business, my CBDT business and my vacation property business. Um, as well as IMD on there as well. So everything is all there in one place to find everything. <laughs> uh, when you're looking for hair in particular, just go straight to the website, just hairmaidenindia.com. And that's maiden spelled like M-A-I-D-E-N. You're like your mother's maiden name, hairmaidenindia.com. Um, and everything is right there. On top of that, if you're like a child or a parent going through something like that and you want to reach out to me directly, um, I do answer my phone. I am a real person. I'm a human. And I don't have robots or answering services and stuff like that. Um, so my direct number is 228-596-5678. Um, I talk about hair all day long. So if you'd like to call me and just have me listen to you about stuff like more like on a heart-based level, I would love that. Like literally, I would love that. Um, so please feel free to reach out. Um, and beyond that, I'm really easy to find, man. You Google Rocky Singh Candola. There's not two. I don't think there's any other ones. I'm the only one. And, yeah, you're the only one I found. Yeah. I Googled you. Don't worry. I Googled you. <laughs> well, like I said, we bookend everything but with, with wine. Um, what is your favorite type of wine, red, white, rosé, and do you have a f- particular favorite? Okay, so I used to drink a lot of liquor, and I've been learning to drink more wine to be more classy, especially at restaurants and stuff, so I'm, <laughs> I'm still diving and learning. I, my main things right now are white wine for the days or the beach times, and then red wines for dinner and relaxing times. Um, that's the only big difference that I've made so far. Um, in Stick with me. I got you, Rocky. I got I'm gonna you. I'm going to try the Beats. I'm going to try that. It's I'm, really I'm good. I so appreciate you, you know, really – being vulnerable because I'm sure it's the more you talk about it, the easier, I think the easier it is to talk about. That doesn't mean it affects you any less, but I've, that's something I've learned with my past traumas is the more that I talk about it, the more I, the more I'm able to share, the more maybe somebody can learn from, from certain things. So the fact that you're able to share these, this experience, I can't even imagine how many people you have affected and will affect with your story. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and and talking about it and sharing your story. Definitely. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you. Until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on Rocky, please see the show notes for website and social media links and feel free to connect with him if you have any questions. You can check out all things Wine and Cheesemate on our website, thewineandcheesematepodcast.com. There you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on Instagram at The Wine and Cheesemate, Facebook at The Wine and Cheesemate Podcast, and we are now on Twitter at Wine Cheesemate Pod. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemate, please subscribe, rate, and review. Your five-star ratings are very appreciated, and your positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.